0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes.
1: It is a good viewpoint to see the world as a dream. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, David Lynch is
2: doing NFTs now. What the hell is the world coming to? <laughs> Wait, I thought that David Lynch doing them would make you all of a sudden become like a crypto nerd <laughs> and just be like tweeting about like your, your favorite Bitcoin and how the economy is changing. Like not even David Lynch can convince you? No,
0: I, he, I think he probably could. <laughs> I remember back in like 2017, 2018, but I think it was end of 2017 where I'm just so obsessed with uh, Twin Peaks and David Lynch at that point. And it's also like a huge bonding experience with my daughter. And then he puts out some kind of quote where he said about Trump, like, he could be the greatest president uh, (laughs) of all time or something if he... And what he meant was, like, he has the potential to reach people that, like, no other politician has the potential to reach or something like that. But, of
2: course, he didn't... Clarify and who knows <laughs> you're what you a mean. wonderful apologist yeah. now i'm gonna be like our audience is gonna be convinced about nfts and trump by the end of this <laughs> and trump right so then i remember
0: a listener tweeting me like that that he said that and i was like yeah i saw that what are you gonna do and, and she said well i don't think he should he should say that or as to you and i said look i'm not in the business of telling david lynch <laughs> what he should or shouldn't say but at this point, I'm so in the bag for David Lynch that if he told me Trump was a great president, I'd probably just believe he was a great president. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was thinking of that, right? Like, maybe I'm going to get really into exactly
2: as you said, like <laughs> NFTs. <right? laughs> um,
0: what are NFTs for our, listen, for our naive listeners yeah. who aren't like us really into crypto? Uh,
2: right. And NFT is, that stands for non-fungible token. And what it is... Is it's using so like so please don't email me with a correction. This is my best understanding of it. <laughs> I know we have we some, don't really care. We have some engineers <laughs> who listen to this, so I apologize. Um, it's a digital asset, like a picture or work of art or whatever, that uses uh, cryptography from the blockchain to essentially make it unique. So you have whatever it is, like a JPEG, that's signed through uh the i think it's the blockchain but it's essentially just there can only be one version of it so it creates scarcity where you know digital the whole point of digital is that it can be copied in infinitely but this creates some scarcity it gives you only one there's only one work of art that has been digitally signed the stupid even if it's
0: identical (laughs) digitally yeah to every other version of it
2: exactly this
0: it's, is the one that can get auctioned off for like millions of dollars yeah because it has that
2: that's right so you can't think of it as like the work itself being scarce it is it's more akin to having a poster signed by somebody who only signs one poster ever Right. So yeah, like, except without the, the <laughs> signature. Except for without the signature. The <laughs> signature is just a bunch of zeros and ones or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> right. like prime the, numbers.
0: <laughs> they've never, like, gone anywhere near it. Yeah. I mean, you know, or, or anywhere near that more than they've gone to all the, uh, the other versions we, of it. And but, it really yeah.
2: shocks me. As someone who's, in, like, you know, I'm a... a somewhat of a nerd i really like reading about the blockchain and about cryptography and i i like i own some some cryptocurrency and i just just to fuck around with it nfts i it feels like the emperor's clothes. i i feel like are you fucking kidding me like this is meaningless it's it's worthless and people are just on it like like people who i re- otherwise respect are like Yeah, I'm creating an NFT for this. And I'm like, you're just fucking stupid now. Like, that's just dumb. I don't know. I have to think
0: that David Lynch just, like, has no idea what it is. And someone told him to turn some video of this band that he was already done, Mm -hmm. uh, Interpol. And, like, you know, if we do it this way... You can get like two million dollars
2: for it. Yeah, he's like, all right, yeah. (laughs) It's like that. It really feels like the tulip craze in in a way. Are you
0: telling me I can get two million (laughs) dollars
2: for the same video? I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah, the same exact video. It's a bad David Lynch. uh, Yeah, I don't actually know what he sounds like. Um, It's a money grab. Like what? I guess what do they even tell him like put, is it even his fingerprint that created the the cryptography like i don't even know who, who does it to be honest like I,
0: it's a it's a video that he did of uh, this band who, that i've never heard of interpol and their song lights and he's releasing like eight videos of it short videos that are being auctioned off for the NFT,
2: um, yeah, yeah, no. What uh, I'm what I'm asking is though, like when they encrypt it or whatever, when they create yeah. this, like who who even does some is some software engineer eating Cheetos, like and making David Lynch's NFT for him, like is Probably, it doesn't yeah. not? Even, it actually is weird to me. So so I just described like some process. So so David Lynch at some point films a video of his band or whatever. Somebody films it. David Lynch has it. It's readily available on the internet. <clears throat> Probably, and maybe yeah. And uh, some some software engineer who's working for some startup who does NFTs for famous people decides to do the whole NFT, like he creates the token or whatever, whatever it is that is done, yeah. and then puts it out. and And David Lynch has just only only agreed to it. That's the only role he has played in producing this n- novel new thing that can't be copied. So to to sort of foreshadow our guest Paul Bloom Paul talks about in his book where he talks about art uh, the his book on pleasure uh, about sort of the the reason that that people buy things like you know Britney Spears's chewed up bubblegum or you know George Clooney's sweater like we really feel like the essence of the artist has somehow been carried over into the thing Right and that's or just what, a
0: real painting instead of a forgery that's that you right. couldn't tell the difference. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Even if it's like atom for atom, the same exact paint, like in the same exact, you know, you could emulate the brushstrokes. If it wasn't an original, the forgery, they'll burn the forgery, and uh, and that's because there was some contact between the artist and and the work, and maybe that's rational, maybe it isn't. But for an NFT, it's like, well, there's like you've not added the value of the essence of the artist. You know, you've not, it feels weird. It feels dumb paying extra money for that.
0: You know, it's funny with this because there's something about NFTs more than any other crypto thing that just gets people mad. <laughs> And I sometimes say, just uh, for the hell of it, like, it raises interesting metaphysical questions, you know. (laughs) To people who should be receptive to that kind of thing, you know, like, like what separates it? Is it ontologically different from other exact copies of it? And, like, nobody wants to even talk about that they're like no fuck that it's so stupid it's such an idiotic thing and like there's something about nfts that uh, antagonizes people it just inspires a kind of hostility in others that I, is yeah uh,
2: i i think it all uh, boils <laughs> down to again class warfare because yeah. it really seems like what well, you don't have anything else to use your money on than to buy like spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on the exact same digital work of art that has like what you're taking, by the way, on faith to be a unique digital signature. It's not like you have the ability to go and see whether this is actually like a unique token or whatever.
0: And you can't call yourself like a job creator or
2: something like that. Right. You
0: know, like no like aside from the guy uh, and his Cheetos, keeping them flush with Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and
2: Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> uh poor 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 neckbeard engineers. I'm sorry. I apologize for the stereotypes. Could be a woman. It could very well be a woman sitting there creating the NFT. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it could be. What's your credence that it's a woman? <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: I mean, you know, God bless David Lynch if he can use it to bring this new project to fruition which has been teased to us and now it looks like it's not going to happen through Netflix, but it was going to be some maybe a spin-off of Twin Peaks or you know, he always keeps these projects so secret but but then it also got out on Reddit that the project had been suspended and that Netflix wasn't working with him anymore, so you know, he's just like a smoker. He, he's in his mid-70s. It's hard to tell with him because he's always so weird. Yeah. But is, is he slowing down? Is he getting <laughs> some sort of like, you know, creeping dementia? You just will never know. We'll never know until like five <laughs> years later.
2: You him. can't tell the difference. You can't, you can't <laughs> yeah. tell the difference between a script that he wrote with mild dementia and the regular script.
0: <laughs> but he's such a singular person artistic voice that i just i just have just give us something else
2: well i like we were talking about off air um there's like sort of this extra david lynch work that if you're a big david lynch fan and you watch all his movies you can then just go watch the original dune you Mm know (laughs) it's like a little bit of david lynch that you never thought you could have (laughs) (laughs)
0: i mean i i uh i still have never seen that i think it's the only film of his that i haven't seen
2: and uh, you know i've never seen it either so he he dis disavowed it or disowned it or whatever you
0: say because he got his he got control taken away from him because he didn't Uh, get final cut yeah
2: yeah and And, yeah and he's never done an edit like he's never gone back to do
0: no, I think he, once he was done with it, he was done with it. And then from then on, he only worked on projects. Even the twin, when he would direct a Twin Peaks episode, he had final cut for that, and he would. Oh, uh, um, interesting. So, yeah, uh, he did Blue Velvet, and that, that was kind of a, a success, and that just allowed him to do stuff through fire walk with me which even though it's a complete masterpiece was not liked at the time it's like
2: no people were angry you know i really i really think that i mean this is almost obvious but twin peaks was so ahead of its time that you you wonder what it would have been like had he had an hbo or something backing him and backing his creative vision like you know people were were upset about who the you know who the murderer was and i feel like David
0: Lynch Mario. and Mark Frost did not want to reveal.
2: Yeah, that and that's yep. what I'm saying. Like with the yep. backing of of something like an HBO, where they would be comfortable yeah. with that sort of ambiguity, you wouldn't you wouldn't have had to sort of ruin. Yeah, you know, I mean, Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks is still great, but that part of Twin Peaks is the worst part. Well no I think we actually just saw what would have happened if he had had full
0: control on a Prestige TV station. Oh yeah well, station. I, did, I did not see yeah. it. Yeah. You yeah. haven't seen it. But no. um, that's what was so cool about it is you got the full heroin lynch as yeah. it was described and it really was and it was just, just so great in every way like I I'm still I still I just put on a couple episodes the other day that I just cuz I I was in a bad mood and I just wanted to sit there and just be odd. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you we really should watch it. I I I have to I, get, need to watch I have it. to no, figure out a way to get you to watch it. There's
2: no maybe we can watch it and I could do another uh, bonus episode with you about it <laughs> on the same yeah. topic. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> we
0: were talking about this before, but uh Dave did a Patreon episode with upcoming guest Paul Bloom. On an epi- Star Trek episode called "The Inner Light," which yeah. longtime listeners may remember, I have already talked about with Dave.
2: <laughs> this is a this was a Paul Bloom privilege. This is what he's <laughs> what he's earned through his influence in my life. Uh, is that we? I I was like, Paul, you want to do a, a bonus episode with me on Star Trek? He's like, Yes, The Inner Light. And I was like, Well, but, you know, uh, already. T-
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. That's that's incorrect. You <laughs> forgot that we had talked oh, yeah. about
2: I thought, until later. I stupidly had thought that that's the one I had done an episode with Barry Lamb. Yeah, and uh, so I yeah. was actually insulting Barry, sorry, Barry, <laughs> Bell, by <laughs> being willing to redo an episode. But it's even more insulting that I forgot that it was you. <laughs> and for a main very Bad wizard too. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, different perspective, different strokes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I, I hope it was good. I'll never listen to it. <laughs> it out of just pure bitterness. You, you were holding yourself back because of your deep Star Trek fandom. You were really curious what Paul had to say, but you're like, uh-huh. no, on principle, I won't listen. <laughs> uh.
0: Why do you think... You think it's a class thing that people just get mad about NFTs, NFTs? more than anything, and they don't even want to like reflect philosophically on what it means um, in any way. They just want to they just want to express how much they have contempt for it and everybody involved
2: in I, I think so because the the easy answer to why they don't want to talk about it is that it sounds dumb on paper um yeah. but i think that there's a lot of stuff that sounds dumb on paper that would never garner this resentment and i think the news stories about these you know silicon valley bros you know buying collecting they're, they're now collectors of nfts and they'll pay like you know, quarter million, half million dollars for something—it's just—it just feels slap in the facey when and,
0: de- and decadent, like a kind yeah. of like an ugly form of just decadence. Decadence Which is something
2: doesn't. that I—we uh, actually should devote. Uh, like, it's an interesting concept, but yeah, decadence because especially at like this all happened during the time when people were like struggling to feed themselves because of yeah. COVID, and these people are paying. And you're just like, what? It's a JPEG. It's not like, you know, it's not yeah. like it's an extra high quality version of the thing. It's not like I can't see it. It's yeah.
0: You can like Google image it, and-
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, that said, our we're we're introducing a new Patreon tier. Um, it at the ten thousand dollar <laughs> per episode level, where we have an NFT for each uh, for your favorite episode. You'll get an NFT of it. That's right. That's right. If uh, you uh, do it for a year,
2: might as well try. It could be. It, 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 should it be an episode? Should it be a picture? Like a one of our <laughs> one of our Montana us photos. playing <laughs> cornhole
0: in Montana. <laughs> that
2: sounds so gay. Exactly. <laughs> 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 we already
0: said one of my friends was making fun of me that we said that we were lying on the bed together yeah. watching uh, Caché I'm
2: and, not ashamed yeah. I'm not ashamed me neither yeah. you
0: know like what were we supposed to do There was it was a bedroom <laughs> not that's where stand. the TV was
2: you know <laughs> yeah
0: and we love each other exactly <laughs> <laughs> in this day and age yeah uh <laughs> All right. Should
2: we... Yeah, you know who else I love?
0: Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom. We had a fun conversation with him, and uh, yeah, we'll be right back.
2: This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash vbw. I was just talking to a colleague of mine, and we were talking about how many people are having trouble coping with the return to normal with going back to business as usual. And it's something that people don't talk about very often to each other because it's expected of us. We're all supposed to be feeling like, oh, we're happy that things are going back to normal. But many of us are actually filled with depression and anxiety and stressed out to no end. Well, if you're feeling like that and need somebody to talk to, BetterHelp might be for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't actually want to. Um, It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. These are licensed professional therapists who are trained to deal with the sorts of problems that you or I might be having. There are therapists across all 50 states worldwide. You can access it from anywhere at your convenience. So unload the stressors get some unbiased feedback about the stuff that's going on in your life and you'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and very bad wizards listeners get 10 off of their first month at betterhelp.com slash vbw that's b-e-t-t-e-r-h-e-l-p.com slash vbw our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of very bad wizards Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment and thank all of our wonderful dear listeners. We really appreciate all of the interaction that you have with us, all of the emails that you send, like emails that throughout the last whatever, eight, nine years, sometimes just make my week. So please, even though we're bad at responding, if you want to reach out to us, you can. Verybadwizards at gmail.com. If you want to tweet to us, you can tweet to us at VeryBadWizards or at Tamler and at Peas. If you would like to join in a discussion with some of your fellow listeners and occasionally with us, you can go to Reddit, to our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash VeryBadWizards, where you'll find a growing community of cantankerous fucks. And <laughs> you can uh, please check out our Instagram. Um, you can also comment there and Actively interact with all of the listeners.
0: Did you see the uh, persona Instagram uh, shot yeah, that I did? Yeah. That was. Did you do
2: My that? Daughter. No. I Eliza. was going to say, yeah. I, I assumed yeah. it was Eliza who did that.
0: I'm not capable of doing that.
2: <laughs> it was a wonderful uh. Photoshop job. <laughs> <laughs> she's going places that girl uh, <laughs> uh, let's hope or let's hope not <laughs> um so yeah instagram uh listen to us and rate us on apple apple Podcasts. we always enjoy that preferably preferably a good and it helps good us. rating and yeah, it helps five star review and, yeah. and a review and it helps us um uh, find new listeners and you can listen, subscribe to us on Spotify, and I, I think that might help other Spotify listeners hear about us as well. So feel and feel free to post anytime for for new people to find us. Share, share with your friends. Yes,
0: yes. Thank you so much. I totally agree with Dave that it is heartwarming in a literal sense yep. um, to receive all your emails and correspond various ways you interact with us and if you would like to support us in more tangible ways which is also uh beautiful heartwarming and um something that that drives us to keep this podcast going after you know in our 10th year uh you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on paypal you can Go to the support page where on our website where all of these opportunities are listed. Um, yeah, you can find our, our merch, our, our T-shirts, sweatshirts, uh, little baby suits, yeah. coffee mugs. And then finally, you can become one of our treasured patrons, our Patreon supporters. We just put out a bonus episode for our Patreon listeners on the podcast. Uh, uh, great Sopranos episodes, one of our favorites. Pine Barons, if not our favorite. Pine Barons, um, that was a fun.
2: Conversation. That was super fun. Right?
0: So yeah, if you join at the two dollar and up per episode tier, you will get access to all a whole library of bonus episodes that we've done. Now it's uh, quite a collection. At five dollars and up, you get. Um, Access to Dave's site intro, psych lectures, as that he's uh, releasing once a month. You get to select a an episode uh, topic that uh, w- uh, from a series of finalists that we'll choose from all of our Patreon supporters. At ten dollars, enough. And the
2: brothers Karamazov.
0: Oh, and you also get the brothers Karamazov series, which we uh, it's a five part mini series that we did not nfts but (laughs) they still still valuable um, at least us and yeah we were very proud of that and so if you're a dostoevsky fan and want to listen and read along you can you can
2: do that somebody described our podcast as actually the ultimate existential podcast and listed off true yeah and I, i actually had never thought about it that way but it's it's just true that this is we've been influenced by existentialist thinking.
0: We've done so many episodes on those kinds of yeah. questions, yeah. like the absurd and they just went through yeah. like a serious man yeah. uh is a movie that is has deeply existential themes.
2: Ecclesiastes, yeah. Job. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we are the, the one of the top existentialist <laughs> podcasts. At least top
2: there. five, you know, the top five yeah. philosophy existential <laughs> pop culture podcast.
0: Yeah, $10 and up you get, uh, uh, which is a new tier, you get to uh, ask us anything and we will respond in a video format. At least that's how it is for now. Um, we'll see if we stick with that for the $10 and up. So far, we've uh, recorded two videos that... I thought were were fun, at least for us. Yeah. Hopefully for them. Um, it could be that people run out of questions.
2: <laughs> right. <or> join <laughs> even if you join temporarily. I know <laughs> Tamler doesn't like me saying this. Join just join temporarily. Give us a question. Wait till we release the video. Uh, just you know, Feed us some new questions. Yeah, yeah give it.
0: And then you can go back to right. the previous level. Right. At every level um, that Patreon will allow you to join for, you get ad-free episodes yes. as well. So thank you, everybody. We really appreciate all of your support and all of your interaction. Let's get to Paul Bloom.
2: Okay, we're back with... I dare say my favorite Very Bad Wizards guest, the, the fifth Beatle, Paul Bloom, who is now, I have to change the introduction, who is formerly the, the Brooks and Suzanne Regan. The first time I get it right, you're no longer the Brooks and Suzanne Regan professor at Yale University. You are now a professor at University of Toronto and uh, emeritus at Yale University. And we are delighted to have you on. Welcome, Paul.
1: Hey, thank you both for having me back.
0: Thank you for slumming it here with us. Like, normally you're on like Hoover Institution affiliated
1: podcasts. (laughs) He's like on Dax
2: Shepard. Like, he went on Dax uh, Shepard, before we.
1: Who, who are we? I'm not going to forget my friends, you know? <laughs> I, the little people. I, I, I don't care. You guys aren't that important or that special. I, I love you anyway. <laughs> we used to be your favorite thing on the internet, and now we barely- I used ret- to be so proud when I was on your podcast. It was like, really something. <laughs> that was a rough time. <laughs> that was when you hit bottom. Yeah. And I, know, I remember that, you know, I I don't forget that you were kind to me when, I, when my career wasn't doing well. And this was all I had.
2: <laughs> you know, I have- No, a- you,
1: you are still- you, this is still my favorite podcast, and you guys have quite a lot of impact.
3: Thank
2: you, thank you. I know that um, if I were a behavioral economist, I'd say revealed preferences is what determines whether or not we're your favorite podcast. And given that you're here to talk to us in part about your book, I can say that your revealed preference is clearly for Lori Santos's podcast because that's the only podcast that you mentioned in your book.
1: Well, (laughs) I'll answer this very seriously. I do, I do recommend Lori's podcast. It's the one recommendation (laughs) in my book, but. It's a book about about happiness and suffering and pleasure. If I write a book on um, obscenity, I don't know what <laughs> you guys do. Um, so okay,
2: and- I I want to start with saying your your new book is called "The Sweet Spot: The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning." But before we get there, I like I'm going to put a link to this book because we have a little bit of a, a, a in discussion about how good podcasts are for book sales, and I want to show Paul that our audience actually buys books so we're gonna put the link the amazon link to paul's book in the show notes so if you if you care at all about the future of tamler and my podcast uh use that link uh, to buy it
0: or at least if you care about paul ever coming back on our podcast (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: okay in all seriousness how many podcasts do you think you will have been on by the time you're done i don't
1: know 20. wow
2: Tandler, remember when you and I started, there weren't even 20 podcasts. I
1: know. We were one of three podcasts <laughs> in the world. You know, it's weird, though, with the exception of one or two very bad ones where, you know, somebody just reads out questions they got. They're all different. It's just talking to different people, about different things. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And actually, <laughs> and Dave, I thought we were going to talk mostly about the book. At yeah, least, no, no, that's no, what okay. I'm prepared
2: we'll, to we'll do. T- we are prepared to talk yeah. mostly about
0: the but book. But it's true that I we mean, never do that. And, you know. If, if you're a publicist listening to this, this is the exception. It's really only Paul and maybe like a Robert Wright because, you know. Uh, yeah, that and was we neat. had
2: Bob Frank on because, you right. know, we love Bob Frank too. A lot Bob of Bob
0: exceptions Frank. you got there. It's you know,
2: just, <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> white men. It's just white men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs>
0: it's not like we've had a Mia Srinivasan or anything like that. <laughs> She'd be great.
1: <laughs> no, believe me, uh, the invitation is out actually. <laughs> <laughs> to see her on your podcast, I would I would die happy. It'd be a really interesting discussion. Oh. Yeah, oh. interesting. Um, um, hopefully, you
0: know, we can do both you living yeah. and us having her on at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> okay, so to to talk about stuff that's not in the book, inspired by a somewhat controversial tweet, uh, we thought it might be an interesting discussion to ask you, Paul, and then come up with some of our own answers. If you had one question to ask a potential date, so this is a dating profile, you put one question uh, that you think might separate the kind of person you want to be with, you want to spend the rest of your life. <laughs> the with. wheat from the chaff. The wheat from the chaff. You, ha- you have one question that will separate those, uh, that will be answered honestly. What
1: would your question be? Yeah. So maybe this is the obvious one that everybody goes to. Imagine the Star Trek transporter works in the following (laughs) way. It scans your molecular structure, destroys it, and creates a duplicate. Is this something you'd go into and feel your personal identity was sustained, or is it a murder machine?
2: So what are you looking for in an answer? Because I feel like
1: your current partner has a very different answer than what I thought you so this is my second point this is my <laughs> second point because yes my my, my partner no, i'm gonna say my current partner <laughs> your um, partner my, for now yeah my, my partner for your now. partner this at has, time a <laughs> has a notably different view about this she has a very different view about consciousness and identity and yet i love her nonetheless and i'm extremely happy and this is my meta comment which we're gonna talk about other examples in other cases but but Thinking that this is going to work is a terrible idea <laughs> because we are surprised and our views about what's a deal breaker, particularly in a question like this, um, people find themselves in love in wonderful relationship with people. They would have never, they would have never accepted if they first went through a dating
2: site. You're saying you're okay dating like a racist white supremacist. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So, you, as it's long not. as it's a surprise. <laughs> <We've> <laughs> <gassed>. <laughs> right. Do you have any fashy
1: crushes? like (laughs) it's just it's i mean analogy is houses you know i've I've looked for a lot more houses than i've looked for romantic partners and and you think you know what you want and then you find a house and you say wow this is next to an elementary school and it doesn't have a yard but the deck is amazing and you know you just you get surprised
0: so yeah Paul, I know things are going great between you and your current partner, but let's say they hit a rough patch and then My, you my just, 2021 partner. <laughs> your 2021. Yeah, late <laughs> at time 2021. Of
2: record, at the time of this recording. <laughs> <laughs> and let's say
0: you hit a rough patch and so, and you just decide it's not working and then you get in a transporter. <laughs> and then you're transported somewhere else. You know, she comes trying, like, what's the deal? Like, we can work this out. And you're like, no, it's not me anymore, right? <laughs> so that's, that's
1: kind right. of that's... a
2: way to negotiate yes. that.
1: Yes, that's a way. That's right.
2: That's... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm convinced that I would never date Tamil or Summer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's your question. Are you Tamler's
2: <laughs> <laughs> no my my real question would probably just be would will you date me <laughs> I think that would separate the wheat from the chaff right away <laughs> okay <laughs> Tamler, do you have a question you've given, um, you've given this well a lot
0: see i didn't I didn't know we were gonna do this now, but i and, and I've been off the dating market for a long time to the point where like there were no dating apps when I was still right there were only looking. dating
2: cassette and, tapes. And,
0: <laughs> you know, the Ashley Madison leaks didn't, <laughs> as far as I know, find anything. So but like I my brother has been and based on his reports, like I feel like I would need to ask like what level of like physical violence I would need to do to her to <laughs> <laughs> to like for her to feel aroused and turned on. Because it seems like they start the bidding at like choking and biting. And then it just oh. escalates from there. In terms this is of your wow.
2: commentary on millennial sexuality. You <laughs> yes. think they're all into BDSM?
0: Uh, yeah, and, and like I, you know, like it's. Just, I don't want to bite somebody, you know.
1: <laughs> but but you will choke them. <laughs> I
0: mean, if I have to, I guess. But you know,
1: as
2: as Paul repeatedly says in his book, consensually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. in quotes, consensually. My my level of violence is the silent period but only for short periods and that's my maximum level of violence and cruelty the silent treatment the silent the silent treatment.
2: treatment. yeah uh, Di- diana Fleischman, a friend of mine and maybe yours paul um did a series of polls on twitter in which she asked people if uh, what would you prefer um a very long after a fight with your with your girlfriend a very long period of silent treatment or one slap in the face. Uh, and then everything goes back
1: to normal. That's such a good question, I remember when that was on there.
2: Yeah. Did you respond?
1: Yeah. I I I, resp- I would take a slap in the face. I would take a slap in the face in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's the problem to slap in the face. To be hit by somebody, it's very hard not to respond with violence. Unless well, you're really like a not- unless
2: you're a hard boiled noir detective, you know, they get kicked yeah. in the ass all the time. <laughs> I, I actually um I don't think I would ever be tempted to slap back. In fact, I have been slapped by a woman, and and it didn't I was so shocked I didn't even think to really? slap back. Yeah. Say
0: more about that.
2: It was interesting. I was young. It was uh, I I was in I didn't even know what the argument. I didn't. I found myself in an argument with a uh, another woman from my school. I must have been in seventh grade, and she was an eighth grader. And I, I don't know. I to this day I don't know why she got mad at me and slapped me in the face and i was just in shock and
1: uh so if it was a man it would have been
2: different oh yeah oh yeah i would have hit back yeah yeah, yeah. uh yeah
0: because
2: yeah, that's w-
1: really disrespectful yeah slap. It's, yeah slap it, yeah i mean yeah they want to take off their gloves and do that thing <laughs> <laughs> then you have to do a whole duel
0: hey this is about your book not mine my thing
2: of honor so, so my sincere answer to the dating question it would be some sort of question to tap in and i know this is controversial given that you wrote a book called against empathy paul but uh it would be some sort of question to assess how compassionate the person was so it would be or, or how much empathy they had uh, so two two possibilities one an assessment of cognitive empathy. And for that, I I think it would be interesting to ask, do that task that, I don't know who developed it, um, but where you ask people to draw uh, an E on their foreheads with their fingers, or just take your finger, put it on your forehead and draw an E or write an E. And uh, you see whether they have written it for themselves from their perspective, it's an E or whether they have written it for the external perspective. And this is, presumably some sort of measure of perspective taking uh, i think that would if that if that task is true i think that would be a really nice and easy way because i don't i would i only want to be with people who are compassionate and and pers- like taking of the other person's perspective mm-hmm. kindness is a is a good criterion. yeah the other one might be like would you uh how reluctant would you be to open a, a link that was that you were told was a, a video of a beheading i huh. like, i think that that is... that you should feel a lot of compunction there are people who say hey, of course yeah like I'd look at it really are there
0: a lot of people that you date that say well yeah let me see that link let me see that beheading Oh, no,
2: because i've separated the wheat from the chat <laughs> I, <Like, guess>. <laughs> I think a lot of you people may be, you may be selecting away from curiosity That's yeah true. That, that kind of curiosity takes. But you talk a little bit about this in your book, Paul, about seeing things that you like, don't want to talk about or that you, you, you say somewhere. I don't remember if it was reading vivid descriptions of violence or, or, or watching it, stuff that you wouldn't want to actually discuss or describe with other people or watch again.
1: Is that right? I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody has their own flavor of unpleasant experiences. And I talk a lot about it. But some I don't really share myself. And extreme gore or violence um, just isn't for me. Yeah I, mean, I like I like scary movies. I like, you know, thrillers and so on, but really gory movies are just too unpleasant for me. Some people get a lot of pleasure from them. But also, and I don't think that these are bad people.
2: Yeah.
1: There's a big difference between a real life beheading
0: and a movie beheading, too. I don't have a problem with a movie beheading. I would no, have man. a problem doing a, a real life beheading. I mean, this is why and it's it's bad, but I don't look at like factory farm videos and stuff like that. I can't I yeah. can't do it like I, you know, but that's because this is what's really happening.
1: What's uh, the problem you have with real life
0: beginnings? I it's just I don't know. Like you mean if I is it too upsetting or is it a moral thing? It's yeah I don't know. Maybe it reminds me of man's inhumanity to man. Or um, but I, I yeah I don't know why exactly. I never really thought about why I don't like it. But I really don't like to see uh, real life violence that's not in like a constrained setting. Yeah, you know.
2: Is it is it uh, Tamler the the like person-on-person nature of it, because there are these, you know, if you're on Reddit long enough, people will refer to these very well-known videos of real deaths. So there used to be a subreddit called Watch People Die. And there's one video I've never seen, and I hope to never see it, but it is a, a man who gets caught in a lathe in a, in a factory and dies yeah. of a terrible death. So there nobody has there's no there's no violence right. to speak. It's just gore. <laughs> He's just um, a klutz. And then he, yeah. And, and then ends up dying. And I could
0: see myself dying that way, actually.
2: <laughs> but but would that bother you more or less or the same?
0: Less. Yeah. yeah so it is something about the fact that there's there's an intention you know even with factory farms maybe it's a massive course corporation or something like that but it's this suffering that is being intentionally inflicted i wouldn't want to watch people dying like i i have no interest in watching that i'm not curious to see that kind of stuff but i think it would still be less unpleasant uh, or i'd be less averse to that
1: than the other thing for me so much of the physicality of it that's the problem that's 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 what would be upsetting and unpleasant you know I I might watch on the news or something a bomb landing in a you know on a building and blowing it up and yeah. I remember actually having with a lot of people a fascination with the September 11 attacks and watching that a few times and sort of getting all sorts of emotions but it wasn't as visually viscerally upsetting to watch some guy you know getting cut apart in a factory
0: right yeah 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 Right. Wow, this is getting off to a really sunny start. <laughs> who, who, who would
1: date us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: one thing I think, you can't really ask this. You just have to know it. But I feel like the best way to know if you're going to be good with somebody is if you travel well together. If you travel mm-hmm. well together, yeah. then, you're gonna have, then, then, you, then there's hope for your relationship. If you don't, if it, I, I think it's a real problem.
1: It accelerates a relationship, you know. A week of travel is like six months at home.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, this is one of, one of the things that I uh, learned from about my daughter early on because I traveled a lot. Her, her mom and I split up when she was very young, and I would often travel across country with her. And she, uh, she was always so calm and chill during the traveling that that I now look for. I look forward. You know, we went to Peru mm. one summer together. And it was just such a fun trip. And in part it was because her neuroticism was so low about the trip that I, it was like we could just sit in silence for long periods of time on public transportation and not feel the need to complain about anything. And it's, it, it, it really, to, to me, that's one of my favorite
1: parts of, of her personality is just how, well, yeah. We yeah. can answer the question by going through the big five personality <laughs> scale. And for neuroticism, low, is a really good answer.
0: Yeah. All right. Maybe it's time for all of us to get back out there. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, I, have, I,
1: have, I have, despite my jokes before, I have found a woman of my dreams, and there are attributes of that you don't, you can't get from short experiences and from you know polls and so on. You know, the feeling of being understood, being able to talk to the person. So maybe the lesson is there isn't a question.
0: That you can (laughs) ask to separate the wheat from the chaff.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's some deal breakers. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Right. Do you like straw
0: dogs? (laughs) (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by chess.com, a sponsor that I am so proud to have. And I just get excited. One of the few spots that we do that i just get excited to do your dream it's your dream sponsor it's my dream sponsor just because i've been i've been a part of chess.com uh in my entire professional career and uh it's it's a way i play chess with friends it's a way i play chess with uh my brother and now it's a way i play chess with uh some listeners i'm getting a lot of challenges oh cool yeah I, I don't accept all the challenges sometimes because their ratings are too low, and if they beat me, my rating will plummet. So, uh, And also just because I can't. I don't have the time to play a lot of people, but I've been playing a few, and that's been really rewarding, except when I get my ass kicked, <laughs> which I did recently. Just got crushed by a listener, and uh, it wasn't even crushed. It was worse. It was just they chipped away at <laughs> me and kind of humiliated me.
2: Uh, step I back, wish step. I could know enough uh, and see it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well that's the thing with chess.com and uh at the various levels of membership and I now have a diamond membership, you can go through an analysis of every move and and that and I and I did that and I learned every single time I made a little mistake or a little inaccuracy or a time or, or two blunders.
2: Uh, I made two blunders. Blunders, uh, unforced errors like yeah. in tennis. Is it? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a little like that It tells you that this was a bad move, it tells you, and you know, it, it tells you why. But then it also shows you what a better move was, and then c- you can go onto that thread, and it'll play that, and it'll play out. Had you done this move, so it's like this alternate universe where you were better at chess <laughs> than you actually are. It's like a and, Ted uh, Chang
2: story. <laughs> it's
0: like <laughs> exactly. I wish I could communicate <laughs> with the, the, the version of me that didn't make that blunder or that made the best move. Uh, And there's just a lot of, there's these puzzles that I have been doing. I've done almost 40,000 of them. Um, And I still enjoy them, still do them when I'm on the pot, still do them when I want to procrastinate and not feel awful about myself like the other forms of procrastination that I do. Um, It's it's great. Um, You can join for free. But at these other levels of membership, you get unlimited puzzles, you get unlimited analysis and deep analysis. But at every level, including the free level, you can play people and, um, and enjoy the game. It's a really nice interface. It's, really, uh, it's easy to use, and I love it. So... Uh, join chess.com. Help us keep chess.com as a sponsor by going to chess.com/slash very bad and start playing. That's chess.com/slash very no wizards, just chess.com slash very bad to start playing your friends, your family, maybe even me, and maybe Dave, if he can brush up on his game and learn chess today. They also have a great series of lessons, too. I I was going to
2: say the coupon code might just be a reference to my chess-playing ability.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's right. Uh, Thank you to chess.com for supporting this episode.
2: Um. Tamler, do you want to talk? Start talking a bit about the book. So, Tamler yeah. and I both actually read the whole book, which, yeah. is, which is a great compliment. Then uh,
1: I'm, I'm touched. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I want to get this out of the way because I, I want to say it, and everybody knows I, I I admire Paul quite a bit. But as I was reading this this book, I was just again kind of in awe at how good a writer you are. And part of that is saying it to, for you to feel good and for people to know about it. But part of you also is just like, I'm curious about like how you view your own writing and how like you've, over the course of, what, how many books have you written now?
1: Uh, six.
2: Yeah. I, I feel like you, you get better each time. Maybe
1: not each time, you know, it's hard to gauge, but, but do, do you see that? Thank you. I'm, I'm really touched. Um, I think writing's gotten a little bit easier for me. In some ways uh i'm not sure if I've gotten better sometimes i end up you know going to an older book like you know just babies or whatever to try to extract something or quote something and i say oh that just sounds like me yeah um but i work at it i work at it and you know the, the, the standard things i read a lot from people writers i admire and um <clears throat> and then i you know my writing is, is very difficult and i write and i rewrite and over and over and over again and so- Sounds and I send drafts to to friends, and they give me a lot of comments. And then for some of my stuff, editors are also a big help.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah it's great. It's, it's, it's
0: just alive, the, the, the writing in this. It, um, it leaps off the page, as they say, and it's, like, wow, it's fun. You. Yeah. My favorite line, when you describe uh, the girl in The Exorcist, you know, in that scene, in the, that her head is swiveling like a dreidel.
3: <laughs> I
0: love that some- line.
1: Uh, I get some Jewish content. In there
0: <laughs> That's all I need is a little Jewish content, and I'm happy.
1: Um, David pointed out I have a quirk in all my books. There's a sentence over and over again I always use in all of my books, and it is a history. Um, the sentence is: "This is not small potatoes." <laughs> and the the history is that that our first publication together, David and I, was uh, wrote a, a critique of John Haidt, a friendly critique of John Haidt. and we had a line in it about something saying, this is important. And we said, this is not small potatoes. And the editor said that we had to remove it because <laughs> um, I think because foreign speakers wouldn't understand it yeah, or something.
2: Yeah, I, I believe. And it was Walter Michelle who was the editor. Yes, great, and,
1: great field in psychology. And I believe, he,
2: yeah, I believe he actually said this wouldn't translate well into Chinese. And he was using it as an example of like a yeah. general point. But yeah, and, it was it, it, it is idiomatic. Yeah. It's so so when I saw that sentence, I was tickled and I, and I texted you because ever since like Paul was so angry when Walter Michelle made us take that out of the paper th- that that it is a level of pettiness that is rare in Paul. Like he's just not that kind of a person. And it's hilarious to me that. So <laughs> now you're just, put, yeah, just like to get in. revenge.
0: You're peppering your <laughs> yeah. books with this is not small potatoes.
1: People talk about trauma. This yeah. is like this is like the world's strangest revenge film where I just I write books in order to put the sentence in there. Instead of a puppy, your John Wick story is <laughs> the right. sentence got cut from that. <laughs> That's right. And instead of killing a lot of people, I write books and I put in the sentence and <laughs> it goes fine. The, bo- the body keeps the score. Uh, All right. So let's should we talk about it?
0: I mean Yeah. So this one after Against Empathy. Which, you know, one can only call contrarian, counterintuitive, like against the grain, deeply immoral. Uh, This one seems, and maybe this is just something about me, this one seems like it's more fleshing out beliefs and intuitions that we have already. You know, you're not trying to shock us or, or, or make us rethink something deep. It's more that you're trying to get us to think more deeply about all the different uh, values that are important to us and how they interact with each other.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, on the face of it, this could be seen as another contrarian book. I wrote a book against empathy now, writing one in favor of suffering. And it's just more, you know, stirring the pot. But, but you're right. My last book was basically, you know, the subtitle could be You're Doing It Wrong. And <laughs> right. and it, it talked about, you know, a moral practice we all think is good and arguing it's bad. This really is sort of systematizing and exploring some common sense ideas. Yeah. You know, we we do seem to like ha- take pleasure in suffering sometimes. What's up with that? We do seem to relate suffering and meaning. How does that go? How does that work? And it really is, it it, it isn't telling people to do something different. It's not a critique. It's just, it is, as you're saying, it's, it's exploring some facts about human nature, which I think people broadly accept. And there's a lot to disagree with about the book, but it's not pugnacious like my last book.
0: Yeah. And I guess the, con- the contrasting position, if to try to pick one, you know, it would be Dan Gilberts yes. and his kind of version of psychological egoism. But <laughs> I think like he, he's the one with the, the weird view there, not you.
1: Yeah. Um, Dan, more than just about anybody else, was was a useful person to talk through the book. He, he never commented on a book itself, but we had an email dialogue going on for many years about this where he's a hardcore hedonist. He thinks what I'm saying is just bullshit. The idea of seeking after meaning and morality is just, it's just bullshit. It's confused bullshit. All there is is pleasure. Yeah. And we should just be trying to maximize pleasure. And it was fun. In my book, at points, I directly addressed Dan. And Dan is probably the person I cite the most because I love his research. But yeah, he's the guy I'm disagreeing with. He's the foil.
2: Yeah, he's the foil. The idea that might be controversial here for a lot of people, which you and I talked about this, Paul, a little bit, post-traumatic growth doesn't really happen the way that people think it do. And so the idea is that you know some people say, well, after trauma, you become a better person, you grow in ways that you couldn't have otherwise. And this is not to say that people should go through trauma, but only that there is this very wonderful psychological process that makes you a better person afterwards, and you say that it's not even that the jury's out. It's that that's, there's no good evidence. Like trauma is just trauma and it fucks you up. And what might be happening is just people who respond to these kinds of questions just say that they're, they've are they become a better person. And maybe even believe it, but there's no good evidence that it's because of their trauma. And like, I'm tempted some, in some cases to say that seems like something... Uh, may, perhaps about all suffering. I mean, there there seems like you could you could separate the cases in which we're motivated to try to feel pain for some reasons, but the suffering aspect there is so much sort of post hociness to explaining our suffering that it's hard to tell when it actually is something valuable and when it's just something we've convinced ourselves we've, that, that is valuable.
1: So. It's a really good point. I mean, I'm I'm very critical. My book is all about chosen suffering and I'm very critical of the claim that unchosen suffering, just bad shit that happens to you, <clears throat> you get assaulted, your child dies, you know, you lose your job, that that's going to make you happier or re- have a richer life. We're very resilient and resilience is the good news, but I think claims about growth are overstated. But now you could turn around and say, well, all of these cases where people choose suffering and say, "Wow, I'm a better person and I'm happier and I have meaning." Maybe that's the same sort of after the fact storytelling, right? Because a lot of the suffering that people choose—and it's not like you don't
2: say this a lot—is is instrumental. So yeah, so you you know you you write a book and you you spend hours and hours going through all sorts of negative emotions, and it's chosen suffering. But it's not that you chose
1: the suffering; it's that you chose to write a book. I think that's right, and I actually don't disagree with it. My claim, so I have couple, two main claims in the book. One is that often we use suffering to enhance pleasure. And it's just it's a fact. And I try to explore what goes on for that. And that that sort of suffering because it's fun, you know, and hot baths and scary movies and all that. But suffering in the pursuit of meaning is kind of complicated. And I think here's the wrong way to look at it. The wrong way to look at it is somebody says, I want to train for a marathon. And I'm going to get blisters. And I want to get blisters. And I'm going to have some days where I'm sick. And I might fail. And I love that. I think when people seek out these long-term meaningful projects, they actually don't really look forward to the suffering. They don't want it. But right. my it, point is... It comes it, with it, the territory, yeah. It comes with it, right. That, that a meaning, we, we intuit correctly, I think, that a project that we would deem to be meaningful is going to come with suffering and pain. And there's just no way, it, it, they come as a package. Yeah, right. Yeah, and in fact, some, a lot of
0: that, I, I, one thing I really liked in your discussion about flow which I think I don't know, Dave, if we've ever talked about that at length, but flow states being where you just lose track of time, the boundaries between you and what you're doing, you and your activity, just start to get like blurry. You're just in the zone and you know, that's about as pleasurable a state as you can be in. So why don't we seek it out more is the question you ask in the book. Like why why are we not um, just constantly pursuing these flow states. And and one of the things you say is a lot of the suffering to get to a point where you can be in a flow state comes early. Yeah. So you really yeah. have to like go through a lot of frustration and just lack of fulfillment to get, you know, to, if you're going to be a great musician... Um, to get to the point where you can just be on there on your saxophone, just riffing <laughs> and uh, like you, you would have to go through so much. And a lot of us just don't have the stomach for that. I think that that strikes me as totally right. That the, the hard part of a lot of pleasurable activities,
1: a lot of the suffering is weighted towards the beginning of that. I think that's right. And I think it's right on two timescales. So one time scale is a long one <clears throat> where as a musician or, or an athlete or a scholar, to be able to get to a flow state, you have to do a lot of work beforehand. You know, if, if I'm really out of shape and I start running down the street, I'm not going to immediately find myself in flow. I'm going to have okay. to get in better shape before I'm getting in flow as opposed to just, you know, feeling like an idiot and, and hurting a lot. And then there's the immediate part of it, which is suppose I am I am in a phase where if I go to the gym, I'll get a lot of it. I'll, I'll, I'll be an hour in flow. But right now I'm sitting on the sofa and I'm watching Netflix and I have, <laughs> right. you know, corn chips in front of me. And... It's tough. It's it's tough to get out of there. It's it's there, there's, there's sort of a you know a lo- a local minima where where in order to get to the higher place you got to kind of go through some unpleasantness, and you know in here my book is is you know entirely you know dad's advice which is you know well you got to get up you got to do things you got to you know take on these hard projects, but I think it's true and I think the pleasures and value of flow, it's tough to get there. Csikszentmihalyi, who did most of the work on this, has done surveys where he asked people yeah, about experiences in flow states and the surprising large numbers that they never got there in their whole life. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I was I was struck by that. By, by the way, Reese, rest in peace, Valley Chicks. Yeah, about a week ago he passed away. Yeah, I was thinking, sort of, I was lamenting that I, I don't think I experience flow very often in my life anymore. And- Did yeah. you used to? I used to feel like I was in flow when, really when i was reading good shit is when i would feel it like when i was like i remember when i was first studying psychology and and a little philosophy and a little cognitive science just really feeling like i felt in the zone when i was reading and um i don't know if reading quite gets there a a few times when i was really in shape in basketball like what like I had actually trained really hard one summer to be able to 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 have the stamina to play games. Uh for a long time I remember feeling it then. But neither of those I, it's it's So you sad. So I, you, if, you you run. Does that give you I, a state of flow? If I'm in shape enough. Yeah. yeah. If, if you get past the point where it it's you know where you're not out of breath and your muscle the, there is this sweet moment when the proximal Discomfort is no longer my legs and my inability to, to keep running. It's just like actually it starts being like your actual stamina, like yes. to, to keep pounding sort of the pavement. It's not that I'm out of breath and my legs hurt. It's just the, this like fatigue. And that feels good to get. And that's the kind of pain that, that, that feels good to me, like that you push through because you know uh,
1: you're, you're succeeding at this thing. And I, you know, I remember a point when I was in good enough shape when I was training for marathon where I could basically run not fast, but I could run yeah. for as long as I wanted. Yeah. And then you kind of push it. Yeah. And you know, that, that was, that was, I great. need Tom, competition. What, what I need you? to be playing
0: a sport. Like I've yeah. been playing tennis like every week for the last couple of years, but I need something like in front of me. I hate running. Like I don't yeah. mind, like, like I, I'm fine with running and playing tennis or basketball. I hate running just for running. Cause you find it boring. There's, yeah, and also like really unpleasant, you know. Yeah. But I've never been a runner. Like I've I've run some 5Ks and trained for that. But I I, th- I think I would never like it. I don't think I would get to a point where I was th- that it was something pleasurable or addictive or anything like that. I always dreaded it. I dreaded it just as much when I was in better shape <laughs> as when I was in bad shape. Like it yeah. just sucked always. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I I used to get flow out of writing. Yeah and now, now I don't. You know, yeah. my, I'm, my, my style for writing is I write for an hour each morning and not necessarily an hour straight. I could do 10 minutes writing, then move to 10 minutes of email, you know, and I write and I look at the clock I write a paragraph and I see how much time has gone by. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it, it is a source of satisfaction, and meaning maybe because it's really hard and I feel it rewarding and it, is, it's, it ticks off all the boxes of a meaningful activity, but it's not a flow activity for me. Yeah, not you know, me either. i i do i now that i think about it i do when i when i make beats
2: uh like i do for this show i do get into a flow state it's just (laughs) that as you guys were saying i have to get myself to the point where i can devote like an afternoon to doing it and then i can get sucked in but getting there just getting yourself to do it sometimes is so aversive uh and particularly when your days are filled with bullshit like emails and you know administrative meetings and, and then you're just tired and this is the time when we should be running and, and maybe doing something pleasurable but all you want to do is just sit and browse yeah. you know, Reddit on your phone or, or YouTube or something.
0: I wonder if it's harder now to get to flow states because we're so over stimulated with so many other things and there's always something like we could be doing on our phones or on the computer
1: or whatever like I, 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 that wouldn't surprise me if people were. I think definitely. I think boredom yeah. used to be a great motivator yeah, to get up and do something because otherwise you have to sit still. You know, in in, in the evenings I would read books because I'm old enough that I remember <laughs> a certain time there was no TV. Yeah. Well, didn't your, didn't your didn't your be...
2: family gather around the radio? <laughs> <laughs> then there's the Bible readings. That was, that was important. The
0: the burnings but, of the witches, <laughs> of the suspected <laughs> in, in, witches. Yeah,
1: you, you know, there's there's this quote from the the head of Netflix who says, you know, we don't compete against Amazon or Hulu. We compete against sleep, and <laughs> I I I think. Facebook and Twitter and the like, they don't compete against each other, they compete against life. Yeah. They, 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 they want you there and not, not working out, not raising your kids, not, not, you know, not doing long-term projects. Not reading you novels. You know, you yeah, know. not reading novels, that's but right.
2: There, yeah. there is a kind of like a pseudo flow that some of these things give you, like scrolling yes. through Reddit, where they've really tapped into one aspect of the flow, which is you sort of lose track of time but at the end, you've not done anything worth, worthwhile. But it's very easy to get yourself into that position. So like at the end of the day, you know, you sit on your bed and you're scrolling through through your phone and and uh, you bring up this, this theory that I actually love, the, the Rob Kurzban paper on the fact that we have the opportunity cost, right? The, the other activity that we could always be doing is this low effort medium reward activity of going to the next video on youtube or scrolling through more headlines on the front page of reddit or as the kids do scrolling through the next tiktok videos like it's just good enough to keep us doing it but it's so easy that it's the
1: first thing that we can easily do at the end of a day or something I, I never thought of it that way before but it's like flow is always defined as this good rewarding powerful thing but social media gives us you know shitty flow yeah and and, and for me like sounds you know, like diarrhea I, <laughs> okay okay we'll figure out a better name um no unrewarding flow yeah but, yeah you know i pick up my phone and i go on facebook because i have twitter off of my phone because otherwise i'd be a goner and and i'm trying to go to sleep but i pick up my phone and just scroll through facebook and then i get to the movies part like i open up and click on and a little movie and it's a it's a skit from saturday Night live or something then it's a movie trailer and by now the algorithm knows just what i want yeah, yeah. and and then i put down the phone and an hour has passed yeah and it yeah. doesn't feel like an hour has passed and unlike real flow where you have a feeling of reward and satisfaction and accomplishment this just gives you shame yeah it's it's flow in that you lose track
0: of time but it's not pleasurable like it doesn't give you that feeling of, of mastery
2: yeah, yes, or that's right or,
0: yeah or even because I don't think flow necessarily has to be mastery it just has to be feeling like you're clicking. On all cylinders in some way, you're fully engaged, body and mind, and it's just not—it's not quite that. It's more like you're just taking a break from your own thoughts and anxieties yeah. and and the things that you're just stressed about. Like, and, and it just allows you to to not be in your head about that stuff anymore.
1: That's right. It, it, yeah. It's a way of shutting down a voice inside you. It you
0: know, is. It's, yes. not,
1: it's not meditation. It's nothing like that. It's just and. And in that way, I think, you know, it's not like an addiction. It really is an addiction in that a lot of addictions when you, when you're fully into it, don't give you any pleasure. They just give you a relief from anxiety.
0: Yeah. That's what this is. Unlike like the
2: good addictions, like drugs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But you know, but that's why I call it sort of pseudo flow because there is some property of it where, where you can get lost in it, which is it's it's different than just like unwinding it. You can't like, I can get lost in, you know, people have, have talked about this terrible experience of uh, you finally click out of Twitter and uh, your, your fingers just go like the next thing they do is open Twitter because yes. <laughs> like, cause you're so used to doing it. It can, it it's, yeah, it's like the evil, it's like the dark side version of a flow
1: and it's, uh, it's. I like that pseudo flow.
0: You talk about boredom in the book and We've become, I think, because there's so many ways to just immediately stop being bored that we've become so intolerant of even just a moment of boredom where we and so we like we will immediately turn to that and we don't realize that that's just building the habit to the point where we're barely even conscious of I mean you know there, there are these studies of people when they lift up their phone and check their phone how often they do that we're aware of doing it we do it with the intention of doing that like 10% of the time that we actually do it <laughs> yeah you know
1: um, there's an, there's an experiment by Dan Gilbert where um his colleagues uh, where he gets people to give up their phone and go into a room for like 20 minutes. And, um, and the one rule is they can't fall asleep. But they have no reading materials or anything. And people hate that. <laughs> they hate it. Yeah, to, to get an idea of how much they hate it, I, in one experiment, he people get to try to shock themselves, an electric shock machine. And they agree it's extremely unpleasant. But if the machine's in the room, they'll shock themselves <laughs> just because it's something to do. And, <laughs> it's and, and I wonder if he did experiments 50 years ago when... You know, whether people just say 20, 20 minutes of Roman room. Well, I'll just, i I'll do just that. think about my life. I do that all the time. No, I, it's funny. I do. I'm not like that. I love
0: situations where my phone is just non-functional, like if I'm camping or I'm on an airplane or something and I just can't use it. Yeah. I like, I I treasure it. Like, it's amazing. Like I could have that all the time if I wanted to, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't do it. Uh, But yes, I I really love that. And I have these like devices on my phone that shut kind of shut it off and, and simulate that. But going camping or doing something where it's just the phone is no longer part of my life is super rewarding for me.
1: Yeah. I've always been interested in self-binding, you know, using technologies to, or yeah. or other ways to shut off uh, opportunities your future self might want, you know, yeah. giving your car keys to your friends and said and they said don't give them to me if I'm drunk, you know, flushing your cigarettes down the toilet and so on. But then there's the other question, which is it's very hard to self-bind. Yeah, and, yeah. um and you almost need like a, I think I think I think people need like a Leviathan to come, you know. <laughs> yeah. If, if I could choose, if I could choose my supper in the morning, I would eat a lot healthier.
2: There is an aspect of self-binding. I I did a project with an undergrad here uh, who is doing her honors thesis on this. And it was situations in which self-binding is an option that, um, people avoid because it communicates weakness.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: So we were looking at these, uh, scenarios where self-binding would be viewed as a negative. So, so imagine a bachelor who is, whose friends say, we're going to throw you a bachelor party and, and we're going to go to a strip club. And he says, uh, no, uh, I don't want to go to a strip club because I might lose control and do something uh, that, would be, that would consider cheating on my... So, so make me promise that you're, you're not going to take me to the strip club. Mm-hmm. And there it's like, well, really? Like you're admitting that you would be so weak as to lose control in that situation Whereas somebody who says, yeah, I can go like, like an alcoholic uh, who says, let's not meet at any place that serves alcohol versus one who says, yeah, we can meet anywhere you want. And then I'll I'll just not drink. Uh, There is seems to be some virtue in the ability to exert your will in the moment. And when it has like a moral flavor to it, you don't want to say, let's not go close to a playground because, you know, (laughs) I I never know what I'm going to do around some kids. You'd be like, well. You really have to think about that. Like in in your cool moments, you're thinking about losing control.
0: It depends on the thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it depends. Maybe yeah. dieting is somewhat like that. When you don't, you think that you ought to be able to control yourself in the moment,
1: and it's a shame because the one thing we know about change is that this, the way to change and the way to become a better person isn't just to try hard and exert self <laughs> right. control. It's to you know. You guys talked about William James at so much length and talked about his insights about habit, and making things habit which basically involves taking it away from the conscious self and then the other thing is to orchestrate your environment to do self-binding you know to, to not you know don't don't buy the jumbo size uh m&ms if you are yeah. it to snack yeah. too much and it's a shame that we disapprove of this, of people using these <laughs> techniques, because they're the only things that work.
0: Yeah, I I, I I am all for self-binding. And, you know, when I can get myself to do it, which I can quite a bit, like, it's I it it, it works. Like, there's certain ice creams I can't have in the house, because I'll just eat it until it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking, I don't know if this is a mirror of what you were just talking about, Dave, but, like... As someone who likes to drink, or especially like the the biggest example of this was when I was taking a lot of Vicodin, <laughs> and so I'd like I'd go out to dinner with my wife, and we and I would just pop a few Vicodin.
2: Oh, that sounds amazing.
0: She'd be like, uh, and it was a really nice dinner, and it was really great, and we were going to have <laughs> wine. So like, why do I need to take Vicodin? I was like, I don't need <laughs> to take it, but you know, it's just be like fifteen percent <laughs> like better, you know, <laughs> like. Uh, on I, every level, you know everything. Will be, and, and she, but she found that there was something wrong about that. Like it should, <laughs> I should just be like happy without any aid. You're you are know? maximizing
2: pleasure. Like it's like it's it's if, yes. if you can. I remember. Sorry. sorry, I remember when I when I had recently gotten divorced or split up, and you know, as one does, uh, I was exploring my uh, my. Uh, sexuality with uh, <laughs> by meeting lots of people and i remember a good friend of mine this woman says you know i think you're just using you're using sex as a way to like you know get just distract yourself from the emotional pain that you're having and i remember saying well yeah i mean there's two options i could have the emotional pain and not have sex <laughs>
1: or i could have the emotional pain and have sex and i don't know in anyone's calculus how it would be do you uh, do you think you guys should start an advice column <laughs> <laughs>
0: Take Mike, in Have sex uh, yeah, just. No but there's uh, something like about the authenticity Of what you're doing I think I don't know I'm trying to get into this Protestant Mindset that my <laughs> wife has But like something like It, sh- it should be good Without any AIDS Meanwhile, she's just drinking like wine and doing all <laughs> this. So it's bullshit. But I don't know. There is I I I, I can conceptualize what she's saying. I understand right. it. Even we should just like-
2: be eating lukewarm Brussels sprouts. Am I not good enough?
1: You need like a ravioli? <laughs> but, but it's how it's, it's to construe it. So to be fair to her, it's not like you say, well, what if I ramp up my pleasure 20%? Who are you to complain? It's more of the sort, you know? Well, I like hanging out with you. I like to be drunk and stoned when I do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in some way, it gets in the way of a,
0: the, of a better experience. Or way, maybe is, the Im- the implication is I need this, or else it yeah. won't be fun. Right, it's like co- coping, like that. right? Right. Yeah.
2: With that. Uh, well, we know how Tamler feels about the very bad wizards audience, given uh, how how much he drank and ate edibles before we met up with him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can we talk about some things I small disagreements that I had sure. with the book? Um, how dare you! Yeah,
1: um, no. <laughs> haven't you read the contract, my publicist?
2: <laughs> Tamler, we're in the acknowledgments. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is no free acknowledgments. Yes, thank you. No, that. no,
1: go, go ahead, Samler.
2: I have a disagreement <laughs> about Sisyphus.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. I don't even think I mentioned Do I mention Sisyphus in the book?
0: You do. Uh, okay, I, 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 actually, page. I actually don't remember it. Uh, it's, it's in your talk when you talk about goals. Yes. So you write, it's easy to see, talking about Sisyphus... And my cover, by the
1: way, the wonderful art director just put Sisyphus in there, and I love it. Yeah, oh, that's great. yeah, yeah.
0: That's so you write, it's easy to see why this is such an awful fate. There's no goal, he's never finished. When I read that, I thought, well, no, that's not right. There is a goal. Like, the goal is to push the boulder to the top of the mountain. And then when he does that, it's finished. And then he has to go back and do it again, so there's just many goals. And I guess the reason, uh, like, and then, you know, he has to walk down the mountain. Uh, that's, you know, that's a goal and then push it back up again. I, I, the reason I, I raise this not just as like a terminological thing, but I feel like that's Camus' point when he's talking about the myth of Sisyphus is that we're all in some ways like Sisyphus, whether it's writing a book yeah. or whether it's... Uh, we have these local goals that we have to come to terms with as being meaningful somehow and fulfilling somehow, or at least fulfilling enough for us not to take our own lives. So, um, so I think, like you know, to the extent that, that it works as a metaphor, it is something that is uh, that 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 has at its core a, a goal that can be completed, and it just happens to be
1: that it's the same goal over and over again. Is and this but is it was chosen. But it was chosen as a punishment. Maybe you're right. Maybe you could view this as a sequence of goals, and I was wrong to say it's not a goal. But it was chosen as a punishment because it sucks in a certain interesting way. Suppose instead Sisyphus was condemned to build houses of different sizes and and shapes and, and, you know, ranch houses and beach houses as castles and so on. You wouldn't be so tempted to say, what a savage punishment, because there's more room for artistry, the goals are more interesting. So something about, something about this, you, what you're saying might be right, but you have to sort of then articulate what is it about Sisyphus' fate that makes it so terrible?
0: Well, I think like, or at least as, as I understand what Camus is saying, what's terrible about it is that it's just a transparently kind of pointless task, whereas we can trick ourselves into thinking that our yeah. tasks are, you know, have some sort of ultimate purpose and you
1: can't. So Sisyphus you're saying metaphysically, we're all, yeah. we're all Sisyphus.
0: So metaphysically, we're all Sisyphuses, but we, we can delude ourselves more easily um, than Sisyphus can about it. And so the key to you know, conquering this is for Sisyphus to find, and, and this would be true of all of us, like to find purpose even in the most mundane tasks you have to find ways for that to be fulfilling. And we don't do that. I take this as the goal of meditation a lot of the time is to find some kind of almost flow-like state in the most ordinary kinds of situations imaginable because you are appreciating and the experience of being alive and having the experience you're having is is enough.
2: Can can I ask just a question about the, the myth is it that he's told that he has to get the rock, the boulder to the top of the hill? Like is, is his goal constantly being thwarted or is he told that his job is to get it to almost the top and it will roll down to get it to almost the top and it will roll down. Like, is he constantly failing like to get it over yeah. the ledge? Cause that it, it feels like that reads differently yeah. um, than if you're just like, you know, time to roll the boulder, like, like the donuts <laughs> guy. Um, where that's just like a, <laughs> a delineate like he's succeed in some ways he's succeeding every time at his task. If his only task is to get it to the, to right before it rolls down.
1: I'm not sure if it's specified. That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know.
0: I yeah. thought it was that he just has to push it to the top and then and it then just it rolls, rolls down, down. once. It, yeah. But pretty soon my...
1: he'd, he'd get the idea here. He'd say, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> <it's> not <staying. laughs> Oh, I see why this is a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even think he says, this
0: time it'll be different. Like, this time it'll just stay up there and they'll, they'll let me go. But yeah, and I also don't know what happens
1: to him if he doesn't push it. What if he says, like, yeah, right, it goes yeah. on
0: strike? I don't know what happens then either.
1: You know, it, it, I, you could do this as a psychology experiment. You take original Sisyphus, and then you have a modified Sisyphus, where he simply has an infinite number of rocks at the bottom, and he has to push them one by one to the top. But if I had to choose... And at some level, what's the difference? But if I had to choose, I would definitely choose option B, because look at the pile. Look how many rocks are up there.
2: There is a um, a a comic book called The Preacher that they made a TV show out of, and the central sort of conceit of the show is this guy has what they call the voice of God. It's about the supernatural ability that whenever he says something. Everybody has to do what he said when he uses this voice of God. And at one point he tells a guy to go count the number of grains of sand on a beach. And the poor guy is for the rest of his life condemned to counting grains of sand. And you know, this is, but at least there's a goal. At least it's an ethos.
1: <laughs> yeah. And at some abstract level, Sisyphus, the, the sand counter and us are all doing the same We're thing. We're all the same thing. Yeah. But it doesn't yeah. feel this way. If the preacher commanded a guy, okay, here's what I'm going to do: raise a family, a big family, and and take care of them, and have a, a job, a meaningful job, and help people. <laughs> we wouldn't be saying, well, "What an evil curse!" That's just that's just
2: rolling the boulder with more steps. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> can, can I ask a, a a question? Sort of shifting gears. I have I I realize that I have a a question that I don't know the answer to, and I don't, but I don't know what you think about it. Which is. Is there really any sort of deep relationship between pain and suffering? Or is that is it that we have made the mistake of equating two uncomfortable states? Um, because metaphorically, the the way that we can best describe suffering is it's aversive as if you were getting you were in pain. But yeah. you have all these examples of of pain that's not particularly suffering and suffering that's not particularly pain. And it seems like, well, maybe we've made a
1: category sort of error here. I assumed as I was writing the book that pain, unchosen pain, and anxiety and stress and emotional pain, humiliation, grief, all share something. Yeah, and... And and there and is that's what attempts you're pushing back against
2: well not so much pushing back but you know there 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 has been these attempts to to show that like and you talk a little bit about this like that it's the same brain region involved yeah. in physical pain is involved in emotional pain
1: and but if it I, wasn't the same brain region i wouldn't care so so right you know, that's I, right
2: that's right and i actually think those those studies m- might be in question anyway and but it seems to me as as if maybe be- because pain physical pain is so often aversive we are just using this as a metaphor for the kinds of aversive experience that are really suffering for humans. Because, you know, I don't even know, uh, there are plenty of times where I feel pain where it's not particular suffering. The suffering comes from anticipating it, I guess. So
1: some pain could be pleasant or neutral.
2: Flossing, I find that flossing and digging into my gums is a good good pain.
1: You know so, yeah, I, I agree with that, so not all pain is suffering, not all suffering is pain, but I think pain and these other things we're talking about share a certain quality, and I think one way to illustrate is what we were talking about before. So remember the Twitter poll: Would you rather get the silent treatment for two yeah. hours or get slapped in the face? That's a good question. You could you could certainly feel like a good question because it it's they both suck, right. and it's the it's the suckiness that I'm talking about and that you could put them on a common scale that makes them think that they're similar?
2: I guess that's what I'm... Yeah, that's what I'm... That's, I I think, what I've started to doubt because it's like if if pain pain is to pleasure what suffering is to flourishing, um, maybe. But it seems like the temptation to reduce things to a singular scale of pain... And here I'm almost making a Tamler point and I feel deeply ashamed. Um, But, But the... The thought that there is a common denominator, you know, you know, uh, whatever, not common denominator, you know, you and I have have in print said that moral disgust is mere metaphor. But it's mere metaphor, not because there's nothing in common between feeling disgust and feeling that something was immoral, because there is something common or else it wouldn't be a metaphor. Um, There is this sense that you don't like it. You want to push away from it. You don't want to be around people who do it but it's, it's so not discussed that other languages might not make the same comparison between uh, the feeling of disgust and the feeling of moral disapproval. And maybe one way of asking it is, uh, if you ask people in, you know, the Foray tribe in the 1960s, you said, um, you, you, you smash your finger with a, with a stone, you lose your child, your child yeah. dies. Uh, Sort sort these experiences. Would they sort those into uh, the same bucket? Or or even you know the
1: English word pain can yeah. be described for the loss of a loved one or for humiliation. Yeah. You know that was right. what you said to me was really painful. Right. You know people m- make fun maybe rightfully so of the overextension word violence. Yes. To to talk about hurt feelings. Well, you've caused someone. harm and you've
2: caused harm. You've ca- you know. Yes, yeah, but I it's guess. not
1: crazy. I mean, you 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 see that you've caused you've caused harm. It would be really interesting if there are some languages which only restrict the word pain to physical pain and don't extend it. Yeah. That's yeah. a great question. Would be inter- you know, there, there's a way to take... This is sort of a segue, but this is one of... I, I, you're accusing me of sort of bundling everything too much together into one thing of suffering. There's a different objection, which is an objection against the, moral, uh, the motivational pluralism, which put into different things. And Dan Gilbert didn't say this, but it was sort of sparked by a conversation. Which is there's a certain argument that in the end there has to be just one thing. Yeah. And it goes like this. Yeah. I have to decide whether or not to sit at home and watch Netflix and eat ice cream or visit my sick aunt in a hospital, or you know, read up on astronomy and learn some true things. Because I can make that choice, I have to rank them. I have to say this is a seven and this is a six and this is an eight. Yeah. And so at some level, all of these have to come into one scale. Does that make sense?
2: It does, but I I don't buy, I don't buy the objection. There are versions of it that I might buy, um, in, in, if, if you had a fleshed out theory for, for why, um, these all boil down to pleasure. And, you know, Nikki is a, is a a hedonistic utilitarian. And in fact, some of the work she's doing is trying to argue that you don't need the other stuff. You don't need desire satisfaction as a theory because it all boils down to pleasure. Um, But I think you really need a good account of the boiling because I'm not sure I can rank, you know, rocks and elephants by some metric. And and you might say, well, that's a metric that doesn't make that much sense to me. And I would say, no, look, they're both gray. Um, And this one's more gray. But but sure. So sure. But but is it meaningful to that? you can rank them.
0: So this is the part where I like when I was reading. Dan Gilbert's view, as you described it, I didn't get why what he was saying wasn't just empty. You know, he's saying when you go help the woman, you're helping them because it's more pleasurable. Well, then then you're just defining more pleasurable by the thing that you do or the thing that you want to do or (laughs) where you rank it.
2: Yeah, it's what Loewenstein said about economists and the the preference, the, the way that they define it.
0: Yeah, it's it's purely empty. It's tautological. So then, you know, if they can say that for, well, just the fact that you decide to you know, go to the Peace Corps for two years, it just means that that's pleasurable to you, then then they're not making a substantive claim at that point. That seemed to me, and I don't know if this is true of Nikki, Dave, but that seemed to me the move that Dan Gilbert was making, at least in part. And it's like, well, of course, like, if you're just defining it by the fact that I rank it higher and, and you're calling that pleasure, but now, as Dave said, we're not learning anything. It's not meaningful. We're not explaining anything anymore.
1: Yeah, not surprisingly, I find that pretty convincing. there's a simple-minded hedonist and this is not dan dan gets more sophisticated than that who says look everything's pleasure and you say well what about this guy who gives his life to save his comrades well he wouldn't have done it if it didn't make him happy or if he didn't think it would make him happy and then there's just no it's just you know it's purely tautological
0: why why is it any different what he's doing how
1: is his, his uh how does he avoid that trap in some way it's a burden of proof argument where he says you know i say look you might spend 90% of your life happy and in pleasure, but if you spend 10% of it thinking, oh, you know, this isn't meaningful, well, you should stop doing it. And the way he says it is, why do we have to assume that the, the doubts about the meaning of life and the, the desire for meaning is something above and beyond pleasure? Why don't we just call them the same thing? You're happy for 90% of the time, and you're unhappy for 10% of the time.
0: But that just doesn't explain the fact that we will choose to be experience pleasure Even less of the time to
1: pursue some meaningful project or goal, but he says we're poor decision makers.
2: Oh, he thinks he thinks that given the opportunity, we would we would have chosen because yeah, there there is a way in which like I don't. This isn't really a criticism of you, Paul. This this is a thought that your book made me have because this is a a view that of course I hold that that pain and suffering are cousins. That suffering is just pain plus cognitive, you know. Oh, so, that's
1: interesting. Yeah, an additive theory like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But but you're in 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 collapsing the two, you made me think Yeah. For the first time, maybe this is more like a metaphor.
1: I just wanted an umbrella term of sort of bad yeah. shit. Yeah. And I call it yeah. suckiness. Suckiness. <laughs> and you know, as I yeah. say early in the book, I, I use the term suffering and I, I met somebody who got really mad at me for doing it. it says, you know, suffering is what my parents went through, you know, under Hitler. Right. And and, and I'm <laughs> saying, and I'm using suffering to say, you know, well, sometimes you kind of skip a meal. <laughs> that sort of <laughs> objection is insufferable, by the way.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: suffering is me having to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird with this because, you know, philosophy has uh, psychological egoists and hedonists and, 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 and I find it, to the extent that it's explanatory it just seems obviously false in in lots of cases and And when it doesn't, it just becomes trivial. It just becomes defined by the things that we end up doing or want to do. Where there seems to be more substance to the view as you describe it is in that thought experiment towards the end where he says, you know, you're in the pool 90% of the time uh, sunning yourself and getting pleasure from that. But 10% of the time or 5% of the time you're saying, God, my life is uh, sucks. It's just pointless. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything with my life. And he's saying, well we pay too much attention to the 5%, not enough to the 95%. And that's kind of an interesting claim, that for some reason we privilege those and, and, reflective moments.
1: And, and to go back to your question, why do we get it wrong? I think what Dan would say is, because that 5% is the deci- get one who gets to make the decisions, and conveniently forgets about the 90%. You know, we say Socrates is better than a pig but a Socrates who we're asking.
2: <laughs> right. What, what puzzles me about the view uh, that, that Dan uh, Gilbert seems to defend is that uh, there, is, there is some level of abstraction, like I was saying before, in which I agree that there are, there's shit you, you enjoy and shit you don't, right? Um, and so we, can, we could lump this together and say one's pleasure and one's pain and say uh, those things that we seek out are, are done by pleasure Um, And avoid tautology, but just say, you know, like Dan says, sometimes we make errors. But that, if you really want a psychological theory, I think this is the whole point (laughs) of your book. If you want a psychological theory that helps us understand why in some circumstances we're clearly avoiding pleasure, then it seems silly to just say, well, those cases are just more complicated cases of seeking pleasure, where I would just say, well, yeah, like fine, but they're more complicated in a way that matters. Um, and I am just simply limiting, you know, the use of my term pleasure here to mean this very hedon- hedonic state. And there's all kinds of cases in which we're not even making errors upon reflection. We would choose the pain.
1: And, and that seems like what the goal of the psychology of it would be. It's like, I, I think, I think that's exactly right. I think you take somebody struggling whether to stay home and watch TV and relax or, take a long trip to help a friend and he doesn't really want to knows it'll be unpleasant, isn't choosing between, isn't at a psychological level choosing between two sorts of pleasures. Right. It is It is wrong to subsume it at a case where somebody has two desserts in front of him and is trying to struggle, which one he'll enjoy more. <laughs> right. It's two right. genuinely different motivations, genuinely different desires, different brain systems if you want, different histories, different individual differences. It may be that the right view from a philosophical point of view, and it's kind of like Tamler saying that Sisyphus seems like he's in a terrible state, but at a certain abstract level, he's no different than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. It might be from a sort of similar bird's eye view. It's all pleasure. But but that philosophical hedonism doesn't mean psychological hedonism is correct.
0: I don't even think the philosophical hedonism is correct. It's just you taking a word and deciding that that word covers all sorts of different kinds of states, and I don't know w- what the truth value of that is. If you're not a Platonist about the concept of pleasure, then it's it, it really just one account allows you to distinguish between different all sorts of different kinds of motivations and and mental states and, and emotional states, and one just calls it pleasure, but <laughs> it right. So, it's a different kind of pleasure. You know, so you suppose, would probably yeah. want
1: to do the more complicated one suppose there's something that a common currency view which is that when you make decisions you have to sort of rank everything in the same on a single dimension of you know and then take whatever scores highest and you do that but why would you ever call this dimension pleasure
3: right it
1: it doesn't seem to be in any straightforward sense what we associate with pleasure it's more like i don't know um feasibility or doability or value it's more like value yeah yeah Yeah, exactly
2: yeah and if you start calling it value then some things just don't become deeply puzzling you don't have to worry so much about why
1: bdsm exists yes you know and and it explains why it's a difficult it's a difficult question to decide whether i don't know to go on a one-week vacation versus stay home and visit you know my sick friend because they both have value and when you calculate the value maybe they come out pretty darn close but there are different kinds of
0: value that's and it's right. worth investigating right. like that's right. how they're different and not just that there are different forms of pleasure that just happen to be close to each other on the scale. That's, um, yeah.
2: It's, yeah. It's funny because I think one of the sources for why people are tempted to, to lump these things together is maybe in sort of a dual process kind of theory is that, yeah, at the end of the day, you have to decide whether or not to do something and that's a binary decision. And it, much like we've talked about system one and system two, Tamler, where, you know, you say, sometimes you think deeply and sometimes you think shallowly, you know, I suppose, but you're losing a whole lot of kinds of thinking by doing that. And, you know, if you want to be like an economist and say, look, I have a revealed preference. Everything that you reveal to me to choose is something that gives you pleasure. I'm just defining it as such. It's because... There's a way in which we rank all. We we could be pluralists about value and motivation, and we have all these sophisticated things. But at the you know in the end, we have to choose whether to go to the zoo with our children or sit home and watch Pornhub, and, and maybe that's the temptation.
1: Yeah, and sometimes it's an uncomfortable choice. I remember when one of my kids was very young, he um <clears throat> he asked me I was traveling a lot, and he said he asked me if I'd be home for his birthday, and I said of course I'll be home for your birthday. And he said you'd be home for my birthday, um, no matter what, right? <laughs> and I said of course. <laughs> I remember thinking, no, and I tried <laughs> to think how much money would they pay me before I wouldn't be home for his birthday. And you know, it was it was a lot less than a million dollars. Somebody offered yeah. me a million dollars not to be home for his birthday. Of course, I'd go for a million dollars. What and, about like 20 dollars?
2: It was right. It's like <laughs> is that Churchill. Now that
1: we've now that we've determined you're a whore. You see, it's it's the worry about being called a whore. That that, that, that rationality gets such a bad name. By the and way, no, I not, love, not twenty dollars, two thousand maybe. I did not know
2: about that Yale uh, e. Thorndike study where he asked people oh, how I much money that they study. would.
1: And I, I loved learning about that; It was great. No. This was a study uh, by this guy who's this behaviorist from way back, way back, associated with sort of very narrow and technical work. And he has this crazy ass paper. Um, it's like the nineteen thirties or something, where he just says. to I me mean, he says, you know, well, here's a question I'm kind of curious about, which is, <laughs> how much would people pay? To avoid certain disutilities, it mean, a survey, and the disutilities are things like you know, eating <laughs> eating, a, eating a worm, spitting on your mother's picture. Thorndike shows himself as mad, a man of great imagination. It's Spending, a Paul Rosen study. It's like it's you a know, Paul Rosen study. Yeah, Spending yeah. the rest of your life in Kansas, never leaving. <laughs> you said I mean, Russia no. in the book. You said Russia. Russia. I <laughs> I don't want to lose my Kansas audience. Um, <laughs> things like um, becoming deaf in one ear. Some of them are, are crazy. Um, walking down Fifth Avenue in the middle of the day without a hat. <laughs> Cause, cause the times were different. You know. And that's a so, universal call That's a universal. I mean, it's one step away from a you know, Fox game show where you say, you, know, <laughs> where, where you stick your penis yeah. into a, a hornet's nest and how much money would have to pay you to do that.
0: It's squid game.
1: Essentially. It's, it's basically squid game. And and the cool thing is the numbers are fascinating. My my favorite example of this is um you ask people how much. You have to pay them to pull out one of their teeth with a pair of pliers, which is disfiguring and painful. Versus, how much would I have to pay you to kill a cat with your hands? And people want yeah. a lot more for the second one. Yeah, which is yeah. kind of nice. I would choke the yeah. shit out of that cat. Yeah, somebody. You know, <laughs> I'd pay. I'd pay you to get the chance to kill a cat. Yeah, fuck the cat. No, yeah, that, fuck that, the cat. If it was a dog, that, no, would, fuck, be fuck no, the that cats would be one. I'll,
0: know, I'll, I'll pull just, the two. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there, there is that. Uh, yeah, the kill a puppy. Well, you know,
0: I, I was uh, back to the pool, you know, pleasure example where he says we're making an error because we're only asking the the reflective self, the Socrates. What does that mean exactly? That we're making an error sometimes when we choose to do the thing that uh, is more uncomfortable. Like, like what
1: would determine whether that's an error or not? Well, take a fanciful case. Suppose yeah. 90% of the time, um, you're blissfully happy. Ten t- 10% of the time, you're miserable. But we just ask you during that 10%. That seems like yeah. a crappy way to do it. Suppose just to make right. it, suppose you lose your memory of 90%. Or suppose you're mute during 90 That seems unfair. It seems like if you view an individual as a population, you just kind of right. ask the top 1%, how's your society going? And they say, it's going terrific. Well, well right, but th- in those cases, the reason it's a
0: mistake or it's a it's the wrong way of measuring it is because they could be asking it all these other times because it's
1: arbitrary
0: yeah uh, and it's arbitrary but in this case by like as as i understand the the thought experiment you you can't ask the person while they're experiencing pleasure because if as soon as you ask them and they thought about it they'd be like oh my life is pointless yeah. and stupid and uh and and so like that doesn't seem like the right analogy there
1: um no, the I, thing yeah, yeah I agree with you. That's, that's how I end it. In fact, I, I, at one point I point out like, well, you know, who would want to get advice from a pig? Who would want to get advice from some? <laughs> the thing about Socrates is he's smart. He thinks about the future and the past and thinks about other people too. But I even think it's, it's stronger than that. It's by
0: definition, you can't get it from the pig because once, you, once the pig starts thinking about
1: it, they're no longer a pig, they're, they're Socrates. But, but that's too strong. Don't you think the pig's pleasure should be taken into account? Yes,
0: absolutely, but presumably Socrates is taking the pleasure into account too of, you know, his earlier time in the pool. Um yeah, that's true. So I I, it's, it's weird that, you know, to talk about these errors sometimes, like you see this in like the rationality research will pe- people will make errors. They'll, you know, they'll take $10 now and not like $20 next week or something like Like, How is that an error? That's just a that's just <laughs> yeah. you're making a choice. But they like they call it an error. And so I always wonder what the kind of normative assumptions are for like how you determine whether something is an error or not. No, you're
1: you're right. I mean, you know, if I go to my retirement guy and I say, I've decided not to put any money aside for retirement and just enjoy it now, he'd scream at me and say, You're an idiot. You're going to really regret this, you know, many years from now. And I'm saying, Why are you taking the side of my future self? (laughs) (laughs) Don't
2: Don't you know I'm a parfidian? (laughs) That's right. That's right. I'm 25 years, like, like the world is going to be on fire. (laughs) Yeah. uh, yeah. Well, shall we end with that pleasing note?
1: The world on fire.
2: Paul,
0: this was—I really enjoyed reading this book. I strongly urge our listeners to grab them while they're still available. Yes.
1: For the they only literature. printed out uh, 300 <laughs> copies and 300 right. electrical ones. So. Do you have any NFTs? Yeah, for... it's an NFT. Oh, I should get an NFT. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's where the real money for books comes. <laughs> from. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. This was really good. Oh, thanks. This has <laughs> been tons of fun. Really appreciate it. Join
0: us next time on Very Bad Wizards. I'm
3: waiting. man good man they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have pay no attention to that man anybody can have a brain you're a very bad man i'm a very good man just a very bad wizard